Today, uh, we're continuing our series in Paul's letter to the church that is in Ephesus. It's called the Letter of Ephesians. And we're looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Um, This passage may be one of the most clear passages of why we would say that salvation is all of grace. And how beautifully that was expressed by the testimony that uh, Zion just mentioned in, 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 through Indo Partners. That this, this friend, this brother of ours or this sister of ours found Christ and realized the depth of grace. And yet our hearts often wonder, can it really be that good and true? And if there's ever any doubt today, may that be washed away more and more. It's a journey, right? And if you need to return to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, over and over and over again, this is a profoundly beautiful passage. Let's read it together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. So if you know anything about Christianity, even if you're not a Christian, my guess is you have a, a, some semblance of idea that it's, that's about grace largely. And it depends on what tradition you grew up in. There's lots of different Christian traditions and, and denominations and backgrounds and so forth. Um, and, and no matter which one, you realize that it's about grace, but you may be wondering to what degree is it all about grace? Is it mainly about grace? Is it somewhat about grace? Or is it all about grace? And Paul today should put away any debate or argument with, between ourselves as Christians, but also with your own heart, because I think we all really wrestle to believe that this is true. Uh, We may believe it's true for one another, but it's very difficult to believe that it's true for you. That salvation and the gospel is not only somewhat about grace, that it is all about grace from top to bottom. And we're going to see four things this morning. It's a new way to approach God, the gospel is, a new way to treat other people, a new way to talk to yourself, and a new way to do good works. And I know those seem random, but they'll make sense as we go through the passage. <laughs> First, the gospel is a new way to approach God. And it changes everything. This good news should change everything. 
And to illustrate this, I'm going to uh, use an old, worn-out illustration. Kind of like, I, I want to think like a classic album that you love. Like, a, I don't know, you know, your favorite album that you get out. So those of you that have been in the church uh, for more than 10 years, you've heard this so many times. But I hope to you, this is like a classic. And for, the, for others, maybe, maybe this is new. But I want you to imagine that you have some really bad health issues. And so you go to your doctor, and the doctor runs some tests, a battery of tests. And, and always there's a waiting after that, right, that, for the test to come back. And in the waiting, you're wondering, like, what is it? And imagine that you sit down with your physician, and she says, I have bad news and I have get good news. And the bad news, though, is this, that you have a deadly disease. But the good news is there is a cure. And I want to explore some hypothetical ways that someone might respond to this prognosis. Someone might say, uh, thank you, doc, for your concern, but I don't believe that this disease exists. This is similar to an irreligious person. I don't believe there is such a thing as sin, and so I don't have this problem. And so this hope that you're offering me about a cure, it doesn't give me much hope or joy because I don't even think this thing exists. No sin, no problem, uh, no need for the good news, no cure. Someone else might say, I believe in the existence of this horrible disease. I know it's real. I've seen it on television. I've I've talked to other people that say this is a real thing. I believe it, but I can assure you I don't have it. That's not me. I can see how your cure, your whatever you've got would help. And for some people, the people that have it, but it's, It's not much hope for me. It's not much joy for me. It's not good news to me because I don't have this problem. So the other would be the irreligious person, and this, of course, would be what? The the religious person. I agree that there is a a sin problem. I agree that uh, some people have that problem, but I can tell you I don't. I have sinned, of course. We've all sinned. But I'm not a sinner, Sin is a problem for sinners. That's not me. I'm better. I'm basically a good person. And I'm not like those people. And you probably know where we're going with this. The, the good response, the right response, the healthy response would to take the prognosis seriously and say, I have a deadly disease. I'm not able to heal myself. I need the cure for this disease, and then the offer of that cure indeed would be good news. I'm going to die, and yet there's hope. There's, there's joy. There's, there's going to be something that will cure me. That's good news. You would be so thankful for that good news. You'd be so thankful for that gospel, would you not? And the big idea today that I want us to see, and this, of course, is the Christian's response. This is how we should respond, that thank God for the gospel, because I am certainly dead without the gospel, and to live in that, and to never get over that. The big idea that I want us to see today is that we need to understand the depths of the bad news that we face in order to understand the depths, the profound, eternal depths of the good news, because it's this, the gospel is is the cure for a problem, that, a particular issue, right? It's the issue of sin. And if you don't yet understand what the consequences of that are, and if you don't even agree with the consequences of that, then the good news of the gospel is not really good news. 
the gospel is a solution to a particular problem. It is the fact that we, are, we have a sin problem and that God has provided an amazing solution. It says in verses 1 through 3, I'm going to reread it. It says this. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So first, the bad news. We have to see the bad news first. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all walked. He's saying, look, this is every one of us. He says, this is true of me, this is true of you, even though you're Christians, even though you've been baptized, this is true of you still. We all walked in this way. Among whom we all walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And the result, he says, of that for them and for us without the gospel is that we are by nature children of wrath. Basically, that we deserve God's judgment. Now, that's a hard word, is it not? Uh, we don't like to talk about that kind of thing in our culture. We don't like to wrestle with that. But Paul doesn't say that we're nearly sick with sin or only sick in sin or drowning in sin, but that we're dead, dead in sin. And so my great analogy early, it, that doesn't even work. We're not sick. We don't just need a cure. We're dead. We need resurrection. He's speaking of himself, he's speaking of the Ephesians, he's thinking of all of humanity, and he says this, dead in sin, walking in the well-worn paths of this broken world, allegiance and obedience, not to God, but to the prince of disobedience, carrying out fallen desires and deserving of God's judgment. Can it get worse? <laughs> I don't think it can get much worse than that. So the bad news is so bad. But until you accept and understand how bad the bad news is, the good news, the relief from that bad news will not be electrifying. It will not, it will not heal you. It will not encourage you. It will not strengthen you, give you joy. But the more you come to grips with the bad news, and really that's the journey that you're on as a Christian, I believe, is God is showing us over the course of our life, man, I am far more sinful than I ever realized. But at the same time, as you study the Bible and you explore the gospel, you'll see you're more loved and accepted accepted than you ever dared dream possible. Those two things are simultaneously true. Because of the cross and the life and death and work and resurrection of Jesus Christ, those things are true. You'll walk with God. You'll explore God. You'll come to know his holiness. This is why as men, we're studying the holiness of God on Thursday mornings in order to have a greater appreciation of how broken, fallen we are, but at the same time to rejoice in how good the good news is. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, he switches. He, so he goes from, it, it's, it can't get worse than that. You're dead in sin. You're children of wrath. And then it says, but, verse 4, God, being rich in mercy, extravagant in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ by grace you have been saved. There's a phrase in there where it says, but God. We need that phrase, that turning point. Everything's bad. Everything's bad. It's horrible. It's worse than you can possibly imagine. But then, verse 4, but God. And it could have been, 
but God therefore brought judgment and anger and wrath, but instead it says, no, but God who is rich in mercy, and mercy is unmerited favor, it's unearned favor. God who is so extravagant in his kindness and love and his mercy, but God worked in spite of the reality of how bad the bad news is. All that God does for us is mercy. None of it's deserved. Why was God so merciful to us? And he says it's because of the great love with which he loved us. Every, all of these, <laughs> these words are modified by other words. Not just love, great love. Uh, not just mercy, riches of mercy. When did he do that? When you finally got your act together. You finally started, you know, being a good person, you guys. You finally did it. You got to church. You started being religious. Started taking morality serious. You are a little better than most people. And you finally got your stuff together. That's when God said, okay, I'll grant you mercy. Because you're really an exceptionally good person. You're holy. You're religious. You're good. No. He says, while we were dead in sin, dead in our trespasses. Again, twice he says that. Then, right then. Dead people don't do a whole lot. <laughs> I've seen a few. They can't grab the lifeline. Uh, they, they, can't, they can't do anything to save themselves. They can't even ask for the cure. They're dead. That's how bad it was. And yet, in Jesus uh, there's a resurrection of heart and soul. There's salvation. He says in verses 8 through 9, it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And, even, and then he says, let's talk about your faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Nobody. Do you see how this can change the way that you and I approach God? Uh, this is the gospel, and it isn't what you have done for God. It is what God has done for you. If it's something you have done for God, and we're talking about the Apostle Paul. Did he do stuff for God? Yeah, he wrote a third of the New Testament. <laughs> he died for the faith. He established uh, the entire church that we know in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, he revolutionized uh, that entire area. I mean, yeah, he did a couple things for God. And he says, I can't even boast on that. <laughs> if it were something we could do, we, something we could boast about, I did that, I accomplished that, I believed that, I got religion, I finally cleaned up my moral act. And Paul says, no one may boast. It, it's, this grace is so big, it's so extravagant, it's so encompassing over everything. There's nothing to boast in, nothing at all. Religion is what we do, but the gospel is what God has done in Jesus. So Christians have an entirely different approach to coming to Jesus. We approach God through Jesus by faith, and we know our acceptance is in him and through him, and so we come with humility and confidence at the same time. 
humility and confidence all at the same time because it's not in us and yet we've received the invitation as sons and daughters. But during our irreligious seasons of life, we've said, and some of you have had very irreligious seasons of life, your younger, younger brother types personality-wise. You say, God doesn't care about how I live. I live the way I want to live. God, he's running the universe. He's not concerned with my little life. And that's a way to avoid Jesus. Irreligion. I don't, you know, and maybe you had an irreligious phase, and maybe you're still in one. Maybe even as a Christian, you're, you have irreligious phases, let's face it. And we definitely have religious phases as Christians, do we not? Where we approach God like a religion, like we forget that it's all grace. And we forget that we deserve death, and that we still would, that our righteousness is still uh, not enough. So during our religious seasons, we don't need Jesus because of our unbelief in sin, and we avoid him. Who needs Jesus? I don't need Jesus because I'm not a sinner. There's not even such a thing as sin. But in our religious phases of life, and we all go through them, we don't go to Jesus for the cure because we think it is our work, our goodness. It's a little grace. It's not all grace. And Or I've moved past the need for grace. I needed Jesus when I first came to faith, but now I've kind of cleaned my stuff up, and I'm, I'm a little bit better, a little more religious, and I'm clearly better than most everybody else, right? And so we go into these religious phases where we frankly don't need Jesus. Tim Keller wrote, Religious people may be sorry for their sin, but they see sin as a failure to live up to the standards by which They are saving themselves where God just needs to fill in the gaps. It's grace. Of course it's grace, but it's not all grace. And there is a third approach also. There's the religious. The religious approach keeps us from Jesus. Um, The irreligious approach keeps us from Jesus. You don't need Jesus. But you know what else keeps us from Christ? even for the person that believes the gospel is shame. And it's that, it's like, I, I can't. I'm, I'm not good enough. I, I believe it. I believe it for every el- everyone else. And intellectually, I believe it, but I can't believe it for myself. And so we don't go to Jesus. So what is your approach to God right now? I hope it's a, as a child of God, as a son, as a daughter that says, of course I'm still a broken, fallen sinner and deserving of God's wrath, and yet, but that's not who I am. That was true of me, and, that, and it's not because I'm religious either, it's because I'm a child. I'm adopted. So it's not of my own doing, it's all of God. I'm not better, I'm not better at all, in fact, but I am still, I'm now a child of God. I'm not a child of wrath. I am a child of God. And so I don't have to go to religion, and I don't have to go to irreligion, and I don't have to lean into my shame. I can instead be embraced by the living God because of who I am as his son and his daughter. Beloved. Right now, how are you approaching? Is, are you in an irreligious phase where you're like, ah, sin is fun, and I don't think God cares that much? Are you in a religious phase where I've really kind of got it down? I feel like I'm making progress. I feel like God is impressed. (laughs) Or are you living in shame? 
where you know the gospel, you know it inside and out, but you just can't believe that it's true, at least for yourself. But what is the gospel approach? A new way to approach God, and I want us to see next, is this, a new way to treat others. I'm going to repeat verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's by grace through faith alone. Salvation is. Uh, It's not your own doing. You were dead. Dead people don't do a whole lot for God. A gift, it's the gift of God. It's not a result of works, and therefore, there is no boasting. So if you're saved by grace through faith, then how should we approach others? And again, our brother uh, Zion had a perfect illustration of what it's like as a Christian sometimes uh, in our approach towards others uh, to say like, okay, arguing doesn't get us very far, does it? Uh, or to feel like, you know, it's just this intellectual thing and we're just going to debate. And, but instead, it's a heart of love towards others and compassion that flows from understanding who you are. Not just who you were, who you are. Uh, Self-righteousness is being piously sure of one's own righteousness and moralistic. And you know what happens with a self-righteous attitude. It, It, by definition, leads us to judging other people, looking down on other people, uh being judgmental. Obviously, friends, our culture believes that's how all of the followers of Jesus are. And so we get to be a foil to that. (laughs) You get to be the Christian that blows that apart. You get to be the person that that people are like, what? You're a Christian? You're far too nice to be a Christian. I thought they were all self-righteous and judgmental. You get to be uh, the gospel Christian. You get to be somebody that people may not even have a category for. Like, what? This is, this is a person I didn't expect to meet. Someone who doesn't seem to be judging me. Someone who kind of loves me where I and can identify with me and say that they're no different than me except for the grace of God. As we approach others, we are not more righteous than they are. That's not the point. We were lost. We were orphans. And now we're adopted. That's the point. Paul says that the gospel kills all manner of boasting, boasting before God, uh, boasting before others, and boasting even to yourself. No boasting. No boasting at all. The gospel should destroy boasting, especially as it relates to how we talk to ourselves and, and what we think about other people. And I could go on this for a long rant, but I won't. But I just want to, boasting kills a lot of isms that we need uh, killed in our life, right? Think of all the isms that, you know, like, let's talk racism. Why do people, uh, why are people racist? Because they think they're better by the color of their skin. That is ludicrous from a Christian perspective, is it not? That <laughs> if all of humanity is so lost, they, they deserve death and the wrath of God, according to Paul, and you're saved by grace, how can you ever fall into that ism? Nationalism, it puts to death nationalism, it puts to death uh, sexism, it puts to death, how could I possibly look down on another human being created in the image of God and as a, as a, a person that deserved death 
and was saved by 100% sure mercy, how could I look down on any other human being? Except to say this is a, a fellow brother or sister in Christ or someone who's created in the image of God and is very valuable and that God sent his own son for. Amen? This is the solution to where we're at as a society. This is what we need, a people of God so filled with the gospel that all the boasting just stops. You're not better because of your politics. Trust me, you're not better because of your skin color. You're not better because of your religion. You're not better because you're here today. You're not better because you're smarter. You're not better because you're more beautiful. You may be, but you're not better. That won't save you. You've got nothing before a holy God. None of that matters. Your skin color, my goodness, of course doesn't matter. Your ethnicity, your background, your riches, your wealth, your intelligence, everything you've accomplished, none of it matters before a holy God. What matters is the righteous life of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on your behalf. He had to do it because you were so sinful you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he gladly did it because he loves you and he redeemed you and restored you. Now, let's talk about a new way to talk to yourself. And just as intense as I got just there, I want you to be just this intense towards your heart when it doesn't believe the gospel. In order for us to experience the gospel, you have to become... Uh, the greatest preacher that you've ever met. <laughs> You're like, I don't want to do that. I don't mean publicly. I mean just to your own heart. No one knows your own heart better than you except God. I hope that's true. And as you learn your own heart, begin to preach the good news of Jesus to your own heart and to those closest in your life. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is famous for saying in a book he wrote called Spiritual Depression, and it sounds like a, a really sad book. It's actually not. Um, he says, oh, the havoc that is wrought and the tragedy, the misery, and the wretchedness that are to be found in the world simply because people do not know how to handle their feelings. And he says, you've got to talk to your own heart about the gospel. Instead of listening to yourself, he says, you need to talk to yourself. And, and not in a weird way, like not, not out loud, like at Costco, people are just going to think really weird things to you. But in your interior of your heart and mind, you can do that if you want, but in your interior of your heart and mind, talk to yourself. Why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. That's what King David was doing. Is he, he's talking to himself. He's, he's speaking the gospel to himself. Don't give in to the shame, self. I know you're sinful. I know you're broken. I know you may have returned to that thing you swore you'd never do again. But your hope is not in yourself. It is in Jesus Christ. Lloyd-Jones, talk to yourself instead of listening to yourself. Every day we roll out of bed and we immediately begin to start running these tapes that, you know, of stress, uh, things that are making us anxious, uh, the number of things that are going wrong in the world, the number of things that are wrong in our own life, the number of ways in which we're fallen and broken and, and sinful, and all the things that we feel we must get done. Everything that's going on, all the worries that we have that we, for the people that we love the most. And if you're a parent, of course, you just carry this constant burden of concern for the people that you love in your life or your grandchildren or your nieces, your nephews, your roommates, whoever, the person you're in love with, the romantic interest. They weigh on us like all these anxieties and stress. And so often we feel powerless to change anything. And most often we are. 
And so we can listen to that and say, I'm powerless, I've got despair, I've got nothing, I've got no hope. Or we can talk to ourselves and say, my circumstances may not be that great right now. Maybe I do have a bad prognosis. Maybe my child has rejected me or rejected God or is living in such a way that is, I don't understand. Or maybe my spouse is leaving me. Maybe I've got depression, whatever it is. But regardless, this is what is also true. God so loved me that he didn't leave me in my state that I was in. He sent his own son, and that son lived a life for me, and then he died victoriously over sin and death on a cursed tree, and then he rose from the dead for me, and he set his love and affections on me, and there's a coming kingdom in which there's an inheritance that nothing can be taken from me, like like we've been studying And if we leave these things unchecked, the the stress just builds and builds and builds. It's important for every Christian to become more knowledgeable of good biblical teaching, not just so you know a bunch of stuff, so that you can talk to yourself and other people about how good the good news is. We tell ourselves these wretched stories about ourselves and our past and our present and our future when we should be rehearsing the story of God, like, look what God can do. Amen? Amen. And, and remind one another, not in a weird, pious source, like, where, where's your faith, man? No, like, I'm with you. This stinks. I know this is hard, but I love you, and I'm going to walk with you. Because Jesus is with you, and I'm here for you, too. Let's talk to ourselves. What would we say? Oh, let's look at verse 6 of our passage. <laughs> Jesus, he raised us up with him and seated us, the Father did, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And this is a, a past tense verb. It's already as good as happened. Everything that is true for Jesus is true for you. That's what it tells us right now in the present. Also in the present, the God who is rich in mercy loves me God, the only one that actually counts, the only person who can truly give me self-worth, loves me. What does it say about my future? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches, not just riches, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Your present may be difficult. There's resources for that, but your future is looking good question. Do you feel that you're constantly on probation with God? Do you see more of your sin or more of God's grace in Christ working for you? Do you walk around feeling a low-grade fever of condemnation? Reject that shame. That is not what is true. Believe the good news of the gospel. Believe the good news of the gospel. And finally and quickly, a new way to do good works. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. You and I are, the followers of Christ. Created in Christ for what? For good works. Which God prepared when? Beforehand, that what? That we would actually walk in them. God has called us to good works. God has chosen us, he said in chapter one, for good works. Uh, We are to be about good works, to walk in them. But Paul preaches grace so thoroughly that it does make you wonder, like, well, what about good works? Aren't we called to be different people? Aren't we called to good works? Yes, but why? Not in order to be right with God, not in order to be saved by God, but because you are. 
Amen? Children who know they're loved and accepted go about good and beauty because they don't have to worry about being accepted. They are accepted. Friends, salvation is all grace, all caps, all grace. It's not a little grace. It's not a somewhat grace. It is all grace. And this should change our approach to God. It should approach, change our approach to each other. It should change our approach even with our own heart. You could boast if you had contributed something to your salvation, but we have nothing to boast in. Therefore, this good news should be joyful, happy, thankful. It should lead to thankfulness, humility, and love towards God and other people because it is all grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness and your kindness towards us. I think of the hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring. We have nothing, O Lord. We come with nothing. Simply to your cross I cling. Thank you for the cross. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Lord, help us to live in that grace. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.